The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Friday, October 11th, 2019 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Today, Donald Trump leaving for a big rally in Louisiana addressed in confusing and meandering terms the trade deal he worked out with China, details of international policy, and how much money Hunter Biden made. Hunter Biden walked away with a billion and a half dollars from China. A billion and a half. Yes, sure. By the way, that's exactly what the streaming service Tencent pays the NBA to broadcast games for five years. So Hunter Biden worth as much to China as the entire NBA. The president went on, unable to articulate what constituted a red line with Turkey attacking the Kurds, and he lied about the number of jobs Saudi weapons programs provide. And they buy hundreds of billions of dollars worth of merchandise from us, not only military equipment. In military equipment, about $110 billion. It's millions of jobs. Now, with that being just uh, the facts are exports to Saudi Arabia, $22.4 billion. The U.S. buys almost twice as much from them as they buy from us. And according to the Department of Commerce, the U.S. exports of goods and services to Saudi Arabia supports an estimated 165,000 jobs. That supports, not entirely underwrites, supports, not a million. So in fact, Donald Trump made very little sense, showed very little mastery of facts, and displayed very little curiosity, except in one very important facet of the office. Wait, did I hear Shepard Smith is leaving? Is he leaving because of bad ratings? Tell me, I don't know. He had terrible ratings. Is he leaving because of his ratings? I mean, if he's leaving, I assume he's leaving because he had bad ratings. He had the worst ratings on Fox, so there's a reason. Why is Shepard Smith leaving? Well, I wish him well. Ah, yes, Shepard Smith. That's the news that Trump cares about. You know, all he ever wanted to was to be on TV and watching Fox is how he crafted his policies. And when a figure that he's very invested in leaves Fox, Donald Trump is fully engaged. He cares. I mean, it's not like Shepard Smith was with us at Normandy, but still, the president knows when to invest his care and attention. On the show today, I spiel about the CNN LGBTQ town hall or town halls. I mean, it was nine successive candidates. So it was the BBBWHKCOS LGBTQ town hall. But first, on Wednesday night, two associates of Rudy Giuliani were arrested before they could get on a one-way flight to Vienna. Now, this was after Giuliani told Atlantic Magazine White House reporter Elena Plott that he had to meet her Wednesday afternoon, not Wednesday night, because he was flying to Vienna. I'll read from Plot's piece today. When I called 3 p.m. Eastern Time to ask about his Vienna trip, a woman claiming to be his communications director answered the phone. I have called him more than 100 times over the past year, and this is the first time that has ever happened. She said she'd have to get back to me. As we spoke, I could hear a voice that resembled Giuliani's shout, asshole, in the background. Oh, sorry, the woman told me. He's talking to the TV. Giuliani finally sent me a text message at 418 Eastern Time. Quote, I can't comment on it at this time. We will leave the details of that particular caper aside, but we will be joined by the aforementioned Elena Plot, and we will talk about all her other dealings with Rudy and her assessment of the White House's overall strategy to beat back impeachment. The Atlantic's Elena Plot 
up next. If you asked me, a cantankerous, argumentative Italian-American with New York roots, who I would need to explain Rudy Giuliani or Pat Cipollone to cantankerous Italian-Americans with New York roots, Cipollone went to Fordham, I would have guessed, oh, approximately two or three billion people before a 26-year-old from Alabama. But here she is. She's Elena Plott. She is a staff writer for The Atlantic. And she does profiles and break stories and is apparently texting pals with Rudy Giuliani. Some of the best details of White House counsel thought have come from her pen and her observations. Hello, Elena. Hi, how's it going? I'm pretty good. Let's, before we get to the uh, Cipollone recent profile that you co-authored, let's talk about how you established your relationship with Rudy Giuliani. Hi, I'd like to talk about you. I'm from the Atlantic. What was your what was your uh, foray into that? Okay, I'm going to give you just the really honest answer, uh-huh. which is that in December, the Atlantic wanted me to become White House correspondent. So I thought, okay, you know, we're really in the thick of the Mueller probe. It seems like a person I should get to know is Rudy Giuliani. So I tracked down his cell phone number and So when I, (laughs) I promise this is related, but when I put on makeup in the morning, Mm -hmm. I sit in my sink and so I can like get up close to the mirror and I was sitting there putting on makeup and I had a person send me his number and I thought, okay, I guess I'll just go ahead and try to call him. Uh Um, I didn't think he'd answer, but I called and he answered. So I'm just sitting there in my sink. Wait, wait, I have to stop. When you say when you say in your sink, uh, are you using sink to mean bathroom or you're you're sitting in your sink? Yeah, yeah. You're- like you know how you <laughs> you have your sink and then it's not it's not the kind where it's just on one stand, but uh-huh. it's sort of like a full vanity thing. Uh-huh. But I I literally like sit within it. You jump and- up a little bit. Yeah, oh, okay. I do. To get I right do. up to the mirror. Okay. To get right up there yeah. and see everything. Okay. They have they have better mirror technology that you don't have to do that. But anyway, I don't want to screw with your process <laughs> and continue the story. <laughs> Thanks for the note. Yeah, sure. Um, so, I, you know, I'm sitting there doing my makeup and then I rest the phone on my knee and call Rudy Giuliani, put it on speaker. And to my surprise, he answers. Mm. So... I'm like, okay, I don't really know what to talk about. I didn't really have a plan for this. So we just started talking about the Mueller probe, and we have the most delightful 20-minute conversation all on the record, and it ends up making for my first story on the beat, which was that the White House had no plans for confronting the Mueller report, no matter what Uh the outcome of it was. And he just answered. I mean, it was like... You know, I could have been his oldest friend. He didn't know me from Adam, but from there, I just kept calling him, kept texting him. He kept responding. And then finally, we arranged a meeting for the first time. We went to Shelly's back room in D.C. Uh-huh. and smoked cigars and drank scotch and, again, talked on the record. And I don't know, just from there, you know, we, we've had just a nice little thing going. Now, I know he has expensive tastes in cigars because according to his divorce filing, I think he spent $12,000 on cigars. Do you have to buy your own cigars when you smoke cigars with him? Do you expense them to the Atlantic? I I guess I technically could expense them to the Atlantic, but I don't think I did. Uh-huh. 
but he, I, I don't remember what cigars he smoked, but I remember he was drinking McAllen. Yeah. Do you know which year? No, I don't. Okay. I'm going to say, well, I want to clarify. I want to I be accurate. He spent $12,000 on cigars and $7,000 on pens. That's according to the divorce filing. Right. So take that with, did he, did, does he have nice pens? You know, I, I, I can't remember being particularly struck by any writing utensils mm-hmm. in all my meetings with him. But I, be, I mean, I believe it. So as your as the source writer relationship progresses, do you get any feedback or blowback from him that he didn't like any of your stories? Because I have to tell you, as a reader of your stories, I thought he was coming off quite awfully. So I said to myself, I wonder how much future access she's going to get. She seems to be presenting him warts and all. Did you get any guff from anything you wrote about him from the Mueller probe until you started to write about how he thinks he should be the hero, not the leaker. No, I have never, of all the stories I've written about him, I've never heard from him about a particular story. I will say last week when I was asking him some questions over text about everything vis-a-vis Ukraine, he he was like, well, I don't know what I want to tell you. I saw you on the corrupt news network and you weren't so great to us. I'm uh-huh. a CNN analyst yeah, also. yeah. And I, I just responded and said, you know, I'm always fair. And he said, okay, that's true. And so that's the only time there seemed to be a little bit of tension. Mm-hmm. But who knows how things will continue to unfold. Right. Now, before we get to Pat Cipollone, the other incident where your reporting was in the forefront regarding Rudy Giuliani was a conversation you had about within Days, I think, of the whistleblower, or maybe a day of the whistleblower. It was that day, actually. Yeah. So tell me what happened there. Well, I had been trying to get in touch with him for about 48 hours. The transcript had been released, and I was trying to talk to him. Yeah, not a transcript, transcript, yeah. Yeah, yeah, sure. Rough (laughs) summation of notes. I don't know. Um, So that had come out, and I was trying to get in touch with him about that. I couldn't get a hold of him, and then. The morning that the full whistleblower complaint was released, I tried once more to get in touch with him. I texted him. He responded immediately. And so I just called him, hoping that, okay, he's with his phone. Maybe he'll answer. And he did. And, you know, I I, I really barely got a question in. It was just sort of off to the races as soon as I as soon as he picked up and I asked him, you know, what he thought about the complaint. And I couldn't really get a question in edgewise after that. And this and this conversation took place in the back of an Uber. It did. Mm-hmm. And in the report, you noted that your Uber driver worried if that man yelling at you was a threat. Not. I don't think he thought he was a threat. I just thought he, you know, could hear anybody. Probably even outside the car could have heard uh, <laughs> Giuliani speaking at that point. And I, he heard that I had kept trying to ask questions, but would have to cut myself off because he was just still going and going. Uh huh. And so when I hung up, he kind of looked up in the rearview mirror and he said, uh, everything okay back there? It's like, yeah, it's good. It's was good. it on speaker? No, it wasn't on speaker. It was just, he's just really loud. Wait, wait, wait. It was in an earpiece or you were holding it up to your ear and the Uber driver could still hear you? I was holding it up to my, 
yeah, yeah. I was holding it up to my ear. I had it cradled on my yeah, shoulder, yeah. and I had I was using my hands to type on my laptop what he was saying. Oh my god! Now in that piece, you had a quote, and it was a blind quote about from someone close to the situation. Let's say a former senior White House official told me this entire thing, referring to the Ukraine scandal, was quote Rudy putting shit in Trump's head. Rudy had no blowback to that quote. Do you know if he read it? Well, I said it to him in our phone conversation because I had gotten that quote from my source earlier that morning. You know, right when I woke up was when the complaint was dropped. And so I, you know, started reaching out to sources immediately. And so I was able to ask him about that quote. And that's when he responded, they're all cowards. And the president knows they're all cowards. Because I, yeah, I mean, it was important for me to ask him not just about that specific quote, but what I'd been hearing more broadly that week um, from people close to Trump who suddenly, you know, even though they had nothing but wonderful things to say about Rudy Giuliani in the years preceding that moment, suddenly acted like he had been a scourge on Trump from the beginning. And it was important to me to know what Giuliani's thoughts were on that. Huh. And when you talk to him and put the quote to him, okay, I was told that you're putting shit in Trump's head. Do you say by a former senior White House official or do you name the official so he knows who you're talking about? Oh, no. I I mean, I would never name the official. I would never give up my sources. But I, I believe the way I put it was, you know, people in the White House and others close to Trump have, you know, said to me that you are not doing any favors for Trump right now right. with, you know, all this Ukraine stuff. Now, let's talk for a second or two about Pat Cipollone. Before you and your colleague Peter Nicholas did this rather long profile, uh, beyond profile, just a, an analysis of uh, the politics of that position as well. You went, you looked at all the clips. Was a lot written or known about him? And what was the line on him? There was really not much at all that had been written about him, which is why we thought the the piece was pretty urgent, especially, you know, in light of now. Yeah. But he was a pretty low-key guy. I mean, this is someone who was not, he did not need to work in the White House, in other words. Like, he was a multimillionaire who had been in private practice for a long time, really respected in conservative legal circles, Catholic circles, kind of close to everyone on every spectrum of the Republican Party. He's Laura Ingram's godfather, but he also worked at, you know, Republican establishment stalwart firms like Kirkland and Ellis. So for him to take this job, it I think it really did surprise a lot of people because he has been pretty low key. He's never been, you know, a surrogate on TV for the president, everything that he did in support of Trump during the campaign and afterward, not many people really knew about it. Yeah. Now, just to be clear about him being Laura Ingram's godfather, he's 53 years old and Laura Ingram's 56 years old. So it wasn't like Mm -hmm. she was a baby and they named a negative three-year-old godfather. Correct. They got to know each other when they were both in private practice in D.C. in the 90s. And she calls him her spiritual mentor and credits him with her conversion to Catholicism. So from what we've seen, it seems that the strategy on the impeachment inquiry is simply to... And I don't mean this generally, but if it is a strategy, it is to muddy the waters by prosecuting the prosecutors, by calling into question the legitimacy of the prosecution, um, full stop. That's it. Just to deny any accusation and say, if it comes from these accusers, 
it can't be trusted. Are there any elements beyond that that are missing? Any, you know, clever side stratagem that isn't accounted for by the basic, we're just going to deny the legitimacy of the prosecution? No, I think that's exactly right. And I think it's what you know, is interesting at this point about this scandal versus other ones. I mean, everything that Trump and his lawyers and, you know, his Republican allies are pushing back on, everything is process-based, right? It's never about the substance of the call or the substance of the whistleblower complaint saying, here is our, you know, well-laid-out reason why Trump, you know, potentially asking the Ukrainians to investigate a political opponent in order to secure a meeting with him or get military aid is actually okay. That, you know, that line of argument does not exist, even a fanciful one. It's just not there. Everything has been process-based. So I really do think it, um, to me, emblematizes what the fear and stress within the White House is right now that they actually don't have a way to justify the substance of the inquiry. So they might as well attack the process-based elements. Agreed. I want to ask you one other thing, maybe two other things. Uh, The other thing about how this particular impeachment inquiry might go is within media circles, your your CNNs, corrupt news networks, and your MSNBCs, there is this belief that the Ukraine scandal is simpler to understand than all the details of the Mueller report. But among your sources and the conservatives and Republicans you talk to, do they think that that's true? They don't, but I also... I don't know. I I think Pelosi is right in many ways that it's much more simpler to communicate, but it's up to Democrats, I think, to make good on that. And again, I think what Republicans are banking on is that Democrats will screw this up for themselves, to put it plainly. But I think from a messaging perspective, it actually is probably quite easy to communicate to the American people. You know, our leader tried to solicit help in our democratic elections from a foreign power. I do think that that from a messaging perspective, that can be pretty easy. What Republicans are arguing, I don't necessarily believe is that this is not a simple thing to unwind or to understand, but that they will not communicate it in the way that it needs to resonate with people. Elena Plott is a staff writer for The Atlantic. She is The Atlantic's White House correspondent. She is an essential read, as is her Twitter feed. Thank you so much. And now the spiel. Last night in Los Angeles, most of the major and a few of the tertiary Democratic candidates participated in a town hall dedicated to LGBTQ issues. Overall, there were few differences between the candidates, and almost every question that was asked was answered with a pledge to fight discrimination and increase legal protections for LGBTQ people. Will you pass the Equality Act? Everyone, yes. Will you dedicate resources for trans youth? Everyone, yes. Will you try to help prevent suicide? Everyone, it's a serious problem, yes. Will you prosecute hate crimes? Yes, 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 yes. Mostly, the candidates use the LGBTQ-specific questions to speak in general terms about their general positions. Like when Pete Buttigieg was asked about HIV medications, he took the opportunity to speak about all medication. 
It's why we need a prescription drug plan like the one I'm putting forward that caps the amount that anybody would have to pay and that sees to it that low-income people are subsidized so that cost is never a barrier to the ability to get life-saving medication. Or when a gay man asked about paid leave for two men who have a child as opposed to the often more generous leave when a man and a woman have a child or when two women have a child, Senator Cory Booker answered this way. First of all, I want to be clear. We are a nation that has a long way to go to catch up with other countries in just having paid leave, period. And I will be a champion uh, of making sure that we are a nation with paid family leave. Afghanistan and the Congo have paid family leave. The United States of America. Well, I wouldn't compare America unfavorably to Afghanistan's progressive leave policy in this particular manner. Considering same-sex coupling is punishable by death in Afghanistan, maybe not the best example of how behind the world the U.S. is. On the other hand, you could look at it this way. Even a country where they have the death penalty for homosexuality, they still do have 12 weeks of maternity leave. I watched or read the transcript of all the sessions, and I picked up two instances of a candidate not telling a questioner exactly what the questioner wanted to hear. One was Cory Booker. He was asked about eliminating tax breaks for religious institutions that discriminate. And he said, well, it's a process. Whereas Beto O'Rourke just said, yes, no tax breaks for them. And the second one was when Senator Amy Klobuchar said she is not in favor of decriminalizing all sex work, but she did pledge that she's open to discussing it with the man who asked the question. Without differences in policy or even really tone, voters were left to evaluate the candidates on... At one point, they're flirting skills. Joe Biden maybe wanted to go in for a little extra special hug with Anderson Cooper. That was kind of unclear. But he did put out some come-hither vibes to one questioner. Christopher, welcome. Looks like you stepped out of gentleman's quarterly here. Oh, oh, well, (laughs) uh, thank you, Mr. Vice President. (laughs) I tried. Okay, he's silver fox in it there. And then there was the time Cory Booker saw a fellow bald man and seemed to want to trade tips on avoiding scalp stubble. Good evening, Senator. That is one of the most handsome haircuts. <laughs> I was. Uh, were, you, were you about to say the same thing? I was. I was going to say Thank nice you very haircut. much. <laughs> All right. You are a beautiful man. <laughs> there were a few moments uncomfortable for me when journalism blended into activism, which I'm always wary of. So there were numerous protesters who, to my mind, didn't help their cause, one constant theme of the night that they were pressing was this assertion as voiced by Pete Buttigieg. Well, thank you for your question. And before turning to it, I do want to acknowledge what these demonstrators were speaking about, which is the epidemic of violence against black trans women in this country right now. Um, Epidemic of violence. Kamala Harris was also asked by a protester about this. Trans women of color, we are hunted. I know. Systematically hunted. I know. How do we do that? No, I, 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 you're right. Now, the anchors and a couple of the questioners cited this stat, that according to the Human Rights Campaign, which was a co-sponsor of the event, more than 26 transgender people were murdered in 2018, most of whom were black transgender women. And so far this year, HRC has reported that 19 transgender women have been killed. Though, when that number 19 was cited during the forums, people started calling out, no, 2020, and candidates would correct themselves and say, oh, it's 20. And so here's where I become maybe annoyingly journalistic. I believe, I have no reason to doubt beyond that, I believe the basic premise that the world is certainly, and America is certainly dangerous for trans people, trans women, black trans women especially. 
They might be homeless. They might be sex workers. They might be targeted. But the number, 28 last year or 20 and counting, sadly, this year, that's not an epidemic. The best estimate of the population of transgender people in America is 0.6%. But since there were over 16,000 homicides in the United States last year, if transgender people were killed at a disproportionate rate, it would mean the death toll would be over 100. Now, I'm, I am sure that the cited statistic, 26 and 20, I'm sure that's an undercount, but that is the number we have. And with that is the number we have, it is inaccurate to say as a fact, as everyone did, that there is an epidemic of trans murders or even a disproportionate figure. I mean, it might be, I wouldn't be surprised if that were true, just that there's no evidence for it. I want my news networks to be in the evidence game, not the activist game. But last night, activism reigned. At one point, a trans activist took the mic as a young trans boy was about to ask a question. And here's what happened. tell you something black trans women are being killed in this country and cnn you have erased black trans women for the last time let me tell you something black trans women are dying our lives matter i am an extraordinary black trans woman and i deserve to be here My black trans- cnn anchor don lemon tried his very best to engage the reason that we're here is to validate people like you well during the night Black transgender men, black transgender women, transgender people of color asked a number of questions, seemed to engage the candidates. Still, that activist, Blossom, said of Don Lemon. We're proud and happy that you're here. Yes, but remember, we're on our time constraint. All right. Thank you, Blossom, and I appreciate it. Yeah, that's how anti-blackness works amongst people of color. That's what anti-blackness looks like. The erasure of black trans people. Later, another black trans woman was called on for a question. And next, Secretary Castro, I want to bring in Shay Diamond, a singer-songwriter from Los Angeles. She currently supports Mayor Pete Buttigieg. Shay, what's your question? Um, it's Shea Diamond. Shea Diamond. Put that on record. Okay. <laughs> it's on the record. Thank you. Yes, honey. It's violence to, to misgender or to alter a name of a trans person. So let's always get that right first. Wow. The CNN anchor there, Nia Malika Henderson, held it together better than I would have. Violence. She committed a violence in that this woman spells her name S-H-E-A, which is pronounced Shay the world over, but she decides to pronounce it Shia. That is great, but Nia Malika Henderson's not knowing that. That is violence. All right. Here was Shia's question. And we want to just know if you are elected as president... Will you have a group of transgender people to counsel you or advise you? Uh, Shia? Shia. All right. Uh, uh, I absolutely would do that. And in this campaign... Sure, sure he will. And not just for trans issues. How about the Export-Import Bank or Canadian timber tariffs? The category is Kurds. Let's work. The Transgender People Council. Why not? Black trans women were called on, transgendered women were called on, a disabled queer Latino at one point asked a question of Julian Castro, a bisexual woman asked this. The Obama administration was the first to engage specifically with bisexual activists and educators in a roundtable discussion in 2013, and then with a follow-up meeting in 2016. Bisexuals face unique challenges in healthcare, sexual violence, and societal acceptance that have not yet been overcome. 
What would you do as president to support the bisexual community? Now, look, I'm not ignorant. I know bisexual people feel caught in the middle and put down, sometimes by heterosexuals, sometimes by others in the LGBTQ community. But what's a president? We're talking about what a president can do about this. A president could be inclusive, but really, what can the power of the office do for bisexual people more than they can do for queer people in general, right? If they extend rights to all LGBTQ people, the B's for bisexual. Bisexuals count too. This would be like in a civil rights forum if a biracial person asked, well, will your civil rights protections extend to me? I could just picture Barack Obama saying, mm, yes. But in the end, everyone got their assurances that they were seen and cared for and that their concerns would rise to the level of presidential attention. And no matter how uniform the responses of all the Democratic candidates were, the unspoken contrast to the current occupant of the office was profound. And that's it for today's show. Daniel Schrader produces The Gist. He once got a call from Kellyanne Conway while squatting in a baby wash basin. Christina DeJosa, another Gist producer, would occasionally field calls from former chief of staff Reince Priebus while she was perched atop an air conditioner changing the filter. The Gist. You know Shepard Smith's going to get a podcast. Have you heard with Shepard Smith? What the flock with Shepard Smith? Okay, we're still workshopping the name, but it will happen. Umpur de Peru and thanks for listening. <laughs>